Genesis chapter 18 as we continue in our study of Abraham. And as we get to this portion of scripture, the last half of this chapter, what we find in Abraham is, a, is a, another prayer warrior, an intercessor. In this case, quite a unique situation of a face-to-face meeting with God, but in one in which he intercedes for, for those in Sodom, especially the righteous in Sodom. We see in the last half of this chapter, Abraham interceding on their behalf. And there's a lot of lessons in this portion as Abraham speaks directly with God. As we saw last time, God came to him to once again affirm the details of the birth of a son who would be the heir of the promise, the Abrahamic covenant. And yet, after that revelation and that discussion, the, the, the discussion concerning God's next move in regards to Sodom is a subject, and we'll see that. Let's go ahead and pick it up in verse 16 of, of Genesis 18 and read through the end of the chapter. He says, Then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood, still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for the lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him again and said, Suppose there should be forty around there, or found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord's anger be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. But once more, suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'd want to ever, ever have to bargain with Abraham in this discussion here. And, you know, for you and I, we're kind of practical. We think, you know, why didn't Abraham just get it over with and ask him about ten in the first place? But God puts it there for, for, for a reason, some lessons in prayer. And when you approach this section, we really see there's two portions to this discussion. After they are done with the discussion about the heir, they, they, verse 16 says they rose and they were heading towards Sodom and Abraham was seeing them on their way and then this discussion ensues. But in this discussion, we find, first of all, a discussion 
that the Lord has, the angel of the Lord, we believe it's the Jesus Christ has, in regards to Abraham. It's about Abraham, those first few verses. And then once Abraham gets involved, the last section is a discussion with Abraham, between the Lord and Abraham, in regards to the righteous in Sodom. And there's some tremendous lessons here in both of these. In verses 16 through 19, we find that the Lord discusses, should we hide, verse 17, from Abraham what I am doing? Should we hide it from him? Should we not tell him? Should we reveal it to him? And he gives a reason. He says, because he is, because he is a recipient of the covenant, basically. He says here that you know, he's going to... Um, become a great and mighty nation, and all the earth shall be blessed in him. Those are the details of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God had made to Abraham. That covenant is all about God's um, plan for Israel, which is still ongoing today. And he says he's the father of the Jewish nation. Shouldn't we reveal this to him? That's one reason, because of his standing. He's an important guy in history. And also because of his relationship as being faithful, faithful to God, one whom God could trust, one who he, he, he knew him and that he was going to command his children and so on. And so God says, here's a man we can trust. And what a delightful statement. Here's a man we can trust with this information. Here's a man we can discuss it with. And, you know, James 2.23 tells us that Abraham was called the friend of God. And from this passage, we see that Abraham was obviously on close speaking terms with God in his approach to God. Very comfortable in talking these things through with his creator, with his maker. <coughs> And this, and this wonderful statement here that God makes about him is, surely I've known him. In verse 19, for I have known him. I've known him. What a wonderful thing, I've known him. Now, some of your versions use the word chosen. I have chosen him. And yet, even in those versions, when you look at the footnote, they refer to the fact, literally, known him. That's really the idea here. He is chosen because God knew him. And the word basically means to know something or someone and in the context, it appears that God is describing an intimate knowledge of Abraham. I've known him. And he describes his faithfulness as a patriarch, as a parent, and raising his children and passing on his heritage to his descendants. God knew his person. And I believe that's what it's indicating here. He knew him from the inside rather than from the outside. Because we know the Bible tells us that man looks on the outward, but God judges or knows the heart. And God liked what he saw. One he could trust, one who was faithful, one that would pass along a godly heritage to his descendant. And by the way, that's a whole other message here in parenting, isn't it? Because God gives us here some ideals of parenting he sees in Abraham. He's going to command his children. That means he's going to be the, the father he ought to be. He's going to direct them. And he, he's going to direct them to keep the way of the Lord, first of all, to do righteousness and justice, and to enjoy the blessings to, that God would bring into their lives. To, and that's what he says in the last phrase, that the Lord may bring to Abraham. You see, God's co covenant promise to Abraham was unconditional, but the enjoyment of it was conditional. If, they would, if their, his descendants would look to the Lord, depend on the Lord, walk with the Lord, they could enjoy the benefits. And God knew that Abraham would lead his descendants in that way. And you know, that's, we'll, leave, we'll save that, the rest of that verse for, or those thoughts for, a, for, a, for fathers, maybe Father's Day. But God saw in Abraham his faithfulness. Now, what really is revealing about this conversation is a reminder that God knows us. He knows our hearts, doesn't he? 
Psalm 139.1 tells us that he knows our coming and going and our going in and coming out. He knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. One of my children revealed to me not long ago something I hadn't heard before, that when they were young, they were afraid that others could hear their thoughts. And they went through a period of time where they're really trying to really control what they thought around others. Wouldn't that be terrifying if others could read your thoughts? And um, the, my my child never revealed that to me, and, and uh, you know, it would not be a good thing. Especially for me, when it gets to be about 12.01 on the clock up there, to know what people are thinking out there. It might not be <laughs> welcoming to me. <laughs> I'd rather not know. I'd rather look on the outside appearance in that case. You know, the thought of, if the thought of God knowing what's in our heart is intimidating and scary then there's a problem, isn't there? If we're afraid of that, if we're concerned about that, because that means there's guilt. That means there's lack of a right relationship with God. That means there's something hindering our fellowship and our walk with God. And, and, and really, if that's the case, then we just simply need to make things right. We need to confess and forsake, as the Bible encourages us to. Or maybe submit to his will, if it's, if it's something he's trying to lead us in or... or Allow him to make changes in our lives or to seek him first or whatever the case be, what it is. Whatever is that source of guilt, deal with it before God. Believe God forgives and cleanses and moves on with us. And in reality, that thought expressed to us in Psalm 139 of God knowing our innermost thoughts should be comforting to us. It's something we need. And the reason I say that is because we know our lives flow from our hearts, you know, our, our inner beings. Proverbs 23, 7 says, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. It determines the, the actions of our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 20, or excuse me, 12, 34, and 35, speaking to the ungodly leaders of, of Israel, he said, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. And that's why the activities of our lives in the Bible are called fruits, because they're fruits of what, of what the seeds of our hearts are planting in our lives. And we need to remember as Christians that we are sinners. We're in reality, in many cases, our own worst enemies. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And therefore, it's important that God helps us to see ourselves. See in our heart those areas of wickedness and darkness and rebellion and independence that are bringing damage to our lives. We need to welcome that. We need to allow and even invite the Spirit of God to shine the light of God's Word on my heart in order to reveal the darkness within and the beauty of Christ that He would replace it with. So that in turn I will abandon the independence and ugliness of self and yield to the Christ life within. We need the scrutiny of the Spirit of God, don't we? In our hearts. Because our hearts will always take us in the wrong direction. That's the sinful nature. It's a, it's a rebellious nature that we have within. And so we should have the attitude that, that is depicted in the end of that same psalm. In Psalm 139, the last two verses, well-known verses say this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and leave me in the, in the way everlasting. That should be our desires. 
before God is to be searched and to be known. Because the best place we can be for life is in a right relationship with our Creator. That's where God designed us to be. But our lives do not function correctly apart from His power, His direction, and His wisdom. It's something we need to acknowledge. And I often acknowledge it of, 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 with, the, with the illustration of using a tool for the wrong purpose. You know, it's like sometimes my, you have a tendency, if you know what a cordless drill is, and I'm sure most of you do, it's not intended to be a hammer. Yet, <laughs> there's been several cases where just a couple of taps from the cordless drill will, will bury that nail, and instead it destroys the tool. God doesn't intend for us to use our lives to pound the nails of self and self-ambition and self-independence. He intends our lives to be used to, for his glory and to enjoy him. And so God says, says, I've known him. I know his insights. I know his motivations. I know his priorities. I, I know his struggles. That's obvious. God says, I've known him. And that, was, and that should have been welcoming to Abraham as it would be to us. Because our faithful and loving Heavenly Father would help us find deliverance from some of those bad decisions we make, the bad attitudes we have the bad directions we had, the wrong priorities we established, and so on. And so God says, I've known him. Well, that statement also might also indicate another thing. It might indicate the fact that within that sphere of the omniscience of God and knowing Abraham, there was a personal relationship, personal relationship with him. If I slow down, I can say that correctly. There was a personal relationship, wasn't there? He says, we have a relationship, God says. You know, when the Bible encourages us to walk with God, it indicates that God would walk with us as our Lord and our God. We've got to remember that. He is always at the center of life and existence. But he would walk with us as in, because that's why he created us. He created man fearfully and wonderfully. We're all wonderfully and uniquely made for God's enjoyment and for us to enjoy him. In fact, that's one of the glories of heaven. The Bible seems to indicate that in the eternity future, for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, there's going to be a forever discovery of the goodness and holiness and righteousness and wonder of our God. And God wants to wants, but God wants us to experience it, experiencing Him in some capacity in those ways while we're here. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3.10, from the other side of the relationship, that I may know him. That was his desire, and God put it in the scriptures for, so to indicate to us that it should be our desire. You know, one of the great privileges of opening the Bible together is that we discover the wonder and beauty of our Savior as he's revealed to us in his word. That's what the Bible declares. And it's amazing how God has chosen to reveal himself, even in the story of Abraham. You know, it's a, it's a history, it's a dialogue, it's not just interesting to read, it's not just an interesting read. It reveals to us the wonder of God's love, his, his, the, the, the beauty of his holiness, the wonder of his grace, and how he deals with his own. And so we discover those things as we sit here together week after week and learn and discover the beauty of our God. And then we get to leave and go our separate ways and yet collectively seek to live in light of those glorious truths that God has taught us week in and week out. And that's how we get to know God. When we take the theory and make it practice, isn't it? 
when we're not just doers of the hearers of the word, but we're doers as well, as James says. And that's how we get to enjoy him. And we find out God is not a some big mean judge that's ready to whack us with a big stick. God is a loving father that wants to help deliver us from ourselves and from this present evil world. He wants to help us navigate life. And we and we accomplish that as we get to know him, the way he thinks, the way he views life, and the way he would establish right attitudes in our hearts and lives. And th therefore, it's that revelation this morning, the things we're reading this morning, by which, be which become the basis of our knowing him and him knowing us. You know, those two knowings, God knowing Abraham or knowing us and us knowing him is the two sides of, of the abiding life that Jesus mentions in John 15. We're to abide in him and he's to abide in us. That's not salvation verses, that's relational verses. We're to find our life in Christ, are we not? Well, then as we go on here, the discussion here goes on to talk about the outcry. The Lord said in verse 20, as he begins his discussion with Abraham, or begins to introduce a discussion with Abraham, he said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down. Whether they have done all done altogether according to the outcry against it has come to me, and if not, I will not know. I, excuse me, I will know. The other men turned away, or angels probably turned away from there, but Abraham overheard this, and that becomes the concern of his discussion with God. Now, it's interesting. I always find it interesting. What, what's this outcry? What is he talking about? I've heard this outcry, or crying out, maybe some of your version says, in these verses. Verse 20 says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And in verse 21, I'm going to verify that outcry. Well, from who and from what? And how does that, how did that occur? Because our God is omniscient. He knows. He didn't need to go to Sodom. He does that for our sakes, to show he's personally interested, personally vested, and he's going to make the right decision personally concerning his judgment upon Sodom. But so what's the outcry? Well, could it be the reports he would get from his angels or created beings? Remember in Daniel chapter 4, it's mentioned the watchers that came down. They're called the watchers. Turn with me, if you will, for a moment to Zechariah chapter 1. Second to the last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, back up a couple books. Zechariah chapter 1. And I'm just going to offer this as another possibility because I'm not saying I know how God heard the outcry. What is the outcry? And maybe if some of you have an idea, you can fill me in later. But here's a possibility. Here Zechariah is given a vision, and without getting into all the details, I think you'll get the point here. Verse 7, it says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked to me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. 
Well, Bible scholars seem to believe that if there was horses, there's probably riders, but I'll leave that to your own imagination. But the point is, here's another set of beings, spiritual beings, described here as being horsemen who watch over the earth. And, is, and, and the Lord has sent them to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So that's a possibility. But what we do see is that God has watchers in Daniel. He has horsemen here, according to Zechariah, who watch over the things of life. And it could be, going back to Genesis 18, that the outcry came from them. It could be the report that, hey, have you noticed Sodom and Gomorrah and the wickedness there? That's one possibility that we find here. Another possibility could be, I suppose, that the wickedness of Sodom just isn't normal in God's eyes to human experience, and it just didn't mesh with life as he intended. What do I mean? Well, maybe some of you have ever greased or oiled a bearing on a piece of equipment, a bushing, and you know how it is. You get it as clean as possible and, and put fresh, clean oil or grease on it. You don't want any contaminants in there so that the bearing will roll smoothly and quietly. But sometimes it's about that time your little kite comes along with a handful of sand and throws it in the bearing. And if you put it together that way, pretty soon that bearing is going to make, make a noise, isn't it? It's going to be screaming and squealing down the highway. And that's what sin has done to our lives. God never intended for us to live in the context of sin, with its curse, with its effect, with our fallen nature. But it is abnormal. And maybe that's the outcry, that life has gotten so abnormal in Sodom and Gomorrah that the bearings are making noise. That's a possibility. That God, for that reason, God came down to see for himself. And what he says about that, I'll cry, in verse 20, is that their sin is very grave. That's the details of the report, whether it came, which way it came, we do not know for sure. But he says their sin is very grave. Some versions may use the word serious. Very serious. Well, how, in which way is it serious? Well, we know sin offends God. That's really what sin is. It's falling short of the glory of God. It's transgressing the laws of God. And it offends God. And God, that's serious, to sin against our Creator. But sin also destroys lives, doesn't it? Because sin is addictive in all forms, in all shapes, in all sizes. Sin is habit-forming. And sometimes it becomes so habitual we don't realize its influence on our lives. Left unchecked, it destroys families, it destroys churches and nations. Some say that today the church is not shining as a light in the darkness today as it ought. I don't know if that's the case or not. It's not me to, for me to judge, but if it is the case, it may be because of compromise and sin in our lives that have dulled the light. That again is where we trust our Heavenly Father to, re to reveal to us through the light of His Word. Those attitudes and compromises that may have hindered our effectiveness for him. It's serious. It's something that's to be taken seriously in the mind of God. And God always judges it, by the way. Always, always. Sometimes in our lives it's divine discipline as his children, which isn't a punishment, but a source of, uh, necessarily, but a source, source of re restoration. We take it seriously. So he goes down to investigate. And assumably, he says here to determine 
if God's justice would have to be, would be required. This judgment needed to be meted out. He's going to make that decision on first-hand knowledge and as he visits Sodom personally. And that's the rest of the story as we continue uh, next time. But you have to ask yourselves when you read this, you just can't help but ask yourselves, what would God find if he visited our country? I find a country that's abandoned him and his word, rejected his word as authority in our lives, denies him as creator, kills the unborn, redefines his institutions, even gender. What would he find? What would he think? What is the outcry against our nation today? What if he visited our church, our homes, our hearts? And he does. Sin is very grave because it not only offends him, but it destroys everything in his path. And whatever he might find, he would deal with patiently, firmly, with mercy and grace. And I think you find an example of that if you want to ever read Revelation 2 and 3, where God deals with the seven churches. We find God dealing with directly and firmly, but patiently and in grace with the churches there that had drifted from him. But however he deals with it, he does it for, our for his glory and our good. And we have a nation have drifted so far from the foundation of God's word. So far from the knowledge of God, you wonder how we're still standing sometimes. And that should bring an urgency to the lives of God's children, should it not, to reach as many as we can. And for Abraham, he found that his part in helping Sodom and Gomorrah was prayer, was intercession. Maybe he recognized that the sin was so grave and that in maybe being a neighbor to Sodom and Gomorrah, he knew what God was going to find, that the report to the watchers, if that was the case, or the outcry that he heard was going to be validated. Nowhere do you see in Abraham's dialogue here the God, Abraham questioning God's justice towards the offender, nor do we see him trying to justify the ungodly. He just intercedes on the behalf of here specifically of the righteous. And that's compassion, isn't it? When, when, Abram, when God revealed to Abraham this plan to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham didn't step back and say, serves you right. Abraham was concerned, had compassion. Even though if there were righteous, such as his such as Lot, his nephew, and his family living in Sodom. He could have said, serves you right. You should have known better. I warned you, or whatever the case may have been. Instead, he has compassion and intercedes here for the righteous. But it's interesting here, he doesn't seek to defend Lot on personal grounds. He defends him based on his standing. Because the appeal here for the for the for the people of Sodom is, are they righteous? And the idea isn't here, are they living righteously? That was the obvious. Are they righteous because they are right with God? The New Testament reminds us that Lot was a righteous man. Lot vexed his righteous soul in seeing and hearing the unlawful deeds of the wicked. But he was a righteous man, and that's who 
Abraham was focused on. And we find here in this bargaining session, this intercession, we find some lessons in prayer, I believe, here. In verse 23, God, Abraham begins to appeal to the character of God in his prayer. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he appeals to the character of God. And he expects that the judge of the earth, in verse 25, would do right. That was his expectation. And, uh, and God came up with a number of 50, and he, a Abraham approaches God in a prayer in respect for God's character, but also with an expectation that God was honor his character. And, and you and I can expect the same, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's how Abraham approached God. There's an expectation for God to act justly and rightly. He also approaches God in humility. In verse 27, here it, we're told that I am but dust and ashes. He took his rightful place. Remember who was boss, who was God, who was Lord in his life. And that's so important, isn't it? Because believe it or not, God's our creator. He is the one who's made us and formed us and fashioned to us, and someday we will stand before him. And Philippians 2 tells us that someday every knee will bow. And it's a whole lot better if we bow now in life in respect to the authority of God's word and, and, and accept the gospel. Because God's plan to rescue mankind today is to save them through the cross of Christ. Because sin is an offense to a holy God. God required a punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. But in his grace, God provided the gift of God instead is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God in his grace provided the solution, the remedy, sending his own son to take your sin and mine upon him on the cross so that we could be eternally saved. He is our creator, but he's also our redeemer. And Abraham took that posture. I'm but dust and ashes. I'm, I'm made out of the ground. I'm made out of dirt, and I'm going to return to the dirt. And so he came to him humbly. Verse 30, notice he also says here, let not the Lord be angry in his appeal. He says the same thing again, basically, in verse 32, and recognize that God was the authority. It was, it was God who would make his decision, yet he approaches from his rightful place recognizing who God was in this discussion and that God had a right to do as he chose to do. And so the third thing we see here that ties into that is Abraham respects God's will in the matter. When he says, would you, would you, will you, is this what you're going to do? Would you? He recognizes that God has will. He doesn't demand of God. He expects God to act according to his holy character as revealed to us through his word. But he does not demand of God, insist on his plan and his program. He defers to the will of God when he asks, would you, would you, would you, will you? Now, he didn't know God's threshold in this matter. It took him a while to bargain his way down to 10. But he respected God's will. And when he got to 10, God ended the discussion. Well, we've, we're going to find out as we go through the story, and if you know the story, that there weren't 10. But Abraham didn't know that. And 
And yet we recognize in the scriptures there are times when the righteous do suffer with the wicked. We see that somewhat in the tribulation in the future as we see the, the terrible time of, of God's judgment on this earth. Those who are saved will suffer through some of the plagues that the wicked do. We look back to Moses in Egypt and the ten plagues. The Jewish people in Israel suffered through some of those plagues, but not all of them. God isolated them through many of them. But there was times they suffered with the wicked. And so that was the question Abraham asked. Is it going to be the case in this case? He deferred to the will of God. You see, sometimes God's answers are not according to our plans or our desires, and Abraham respected that. And we're reminded of that in 1 John chapter 5 when we're told if we pray according to his will, he hears us. And so Abraham leaves here a tremendous example of the importance of intercession for others. It is a normal expression in our lives. We're told that Hebrews 7.25, that the Lord Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for us. That should be comforting, shouldn't it? But it also should be our example. If our Lord is praying for us and we, are, we share in his life, then we ought to do the same. And it's the one thing we can all do for others. Maybe the most important thing. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. This is an instruction to the church, to Pastor Timothy. Is first of all, first thing he was going to address, the first thing of importance is prayer. Seeking the will of God, the heart of God, the mind of God, the power of God to be at work in lives. Charles Spurgeon, that great old preacher, in his unique way, said this, If they, that is lost sinners, will not hear you speak, they cannot prevent your praying. Do they jest at your exhortations? They cannot disturb you at your prayers. Are they far away so that you cannot reach them? Your prayers can reach them. Have they declared that they will never listen to you again nor see your face? Never mind. God has a voice which they must hear. Speak to him, and he will make them feel. Though they now treat you despitefully, rendering evil for your good, follow them with your prayers. Never let them perish for lack of your supplications. So pray. It's one thing we can do, even those who are not open to it, not receptive to our witness. You know, there's really two considerations that motivate us to pray. First of all, the love of Christ, and I think that's what we see in Abraham. He was concerned for the souls. It was his loved ones and others. He was concerned for the righteous. And I always like to say that love always finds feet. And we can sing about love, we can talk about love, we can say we love, but Jesus' love led him to action, didn't it? He didn't sit up in heaven and sing down love songs to us from, ab from above. He came down and proved his love. And 1 John 3 tells us this is how we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Love always takes action in our lives in some form. And it might be prayer, and it might be service, but it finds feet. It always finds expression. The second thing in our prayer lives, in our prayer of intercession, the question we must ask ourselves, not only are we motivated by the love of Christ for others, are we engaged in the battle for souls? 
I want you to turn with me to over to Ephesians chapter 6 here, just a couple verses here in closing. Ephesians chapter 6. And what we find here, by way of example from the, from the apostle, is the importance of prayer for his ministry. <coughs> and in this discussion of the armor, we know it comes to conclusion with verse 18, praying always, there's that admonition, with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So I'm going to stop there for a moment. That's work. That's work. And it's not about our experience, how much enjoyment we get out of prayer. It's labor. It's hard work. Sometimes it's monotonous and repetitive. But like the widow we read about in Luke 18, in our scripture reading, God wants and invites us to weary him with our prayers. Because that reminds him and indicates to him that we're dependent on him. We trust him. He is capable and that takes labor and commitment to pray always, with all prayer. There's a lot of alls here. With all perseverance, for all saints. All, 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 all. It reminds us how important the ministry is for prayer. And then verse 19, he extends it to himself and for me. Don't forget about me. I'm one of the saints, he says. And here's my request. He was transparent. That utterance may be given to me that I might open my mouth boldly to make known the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that, it might, that I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul was transparent. And someone might look at Paul, you mean, Paul, you're chicken? <coughs> well, that's what I said, isn't it? I need prayer for boldness. There's times I may be timid and may hesitate to open my mouth. I may stutter when I approach certain people. Paul says, yes, I need boldness. That's transparency. And that's how we pray for one another, because we're a family. We're a family. And I want to mention this, that sharing requests for our needs with each other is not gossip, by the way. And I've heard that throughout the years. That prayer meeting is a gossip meeting, and that's, that's the case, and we might as well close the church, not just prayer meeting. Genuine prayer is genuine concern, as Abraham did. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, discussing with Abraham, knew that there was an ungodly nephew in, in, in Sodom that Abraham was praying for. Here Paul opens himself up. He says, pray for me. I don't always utter as I ought. And I can say, I'm with you. And I'm like, like the rest of us, aren't we? But the point was, Paul expected the saints in Ephesus to be engaged in spiritual warfare. And praying for, and praying for all the saints with all perseverance. Notice this is for one another. He isn't even mentioning the lost here until he mentions his ministry to the lost that he might open his mouth boldly. In 2 Thessalonians 3.1, he prays, he asks them to pray that the word of God would spread rapidly. He prays for that once again, that the word of God, as the old King James said, the word of God would have free course. The newer versions say spread rapidly. In fact, when I typed it, because I'm dyslexic on the typeboard, I said, I type spread rapidly. I thought, well, that fits too. That's kind of the right idea. But that's his desire. And he prayed, and he asked for prayer for himself. And that's what we see in Abraham. If the lesson we take home in the last half of Genesis 18 here is Abraham interceded before his God. Thankful that Abraham was on speaking terms. 
that Abraham could approach God comfortably and confidently. And we're told in Hebrews 4.16 to come boldly before the throne of grace, not because of who we are, but because in Christ we have access. And to come before God to bring our concerns and our problems and our, and our cares to him. And we'll find mercy and grace to help in time of need. You know, when Jesus prayed on the earth, he uh, was reminded of the frailty of our prayer life when his disciples fell asleep. I don't know if you remember that. Matthew 26, 40 says, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What could you not watch or pray with me one hour? One hour. Not too many churches do a prayer session that lasts more than 10 minutes, much less an hour. And I think sometimes we fail to tap into the power of God in our lives because we don't expect much from God. We don't give him the time. We don't seek his ear. We don't seek his face. That parable in Luke 18 where the widow wearied the leader begins with then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Which indicates we don't always see the results of prayer. And some people just say, what's it, what's, what's it worth? What's, it's not worth it. But God says, don't lose heart. You can weary him. He'll, he's at work, but it's gonna, he's going to work according to his timetable and his plan. And then at the end of that portion we read, the last verse, verse 8, said, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will you really find faith on the earth? What kind of faith? The faith of persistent prayers. The delay might not see the results. And it might be a lot of labor. They're faithfully seeking God in prayer. And I think that's just an expression of our partnership with him in the battle for souls. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful uh, for, once again, your word this morning. Um, Father, we're thankful that we can approach you with our concerns, with our prayers, with our thoughts. We can intercede for each other. We can pray for the lost. And Father, you promise to hear. You promise to answer according to your will and in your time. And Father, we just have to trust you with the results. And Father, may we be faithful prayers. May we be engaged in the battle. May we be motivated by the love of Christ because we know him and he knows us. And so Father, apply these things now to our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.